0: Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Joe Piazza is our guest today. If there's a way to publish it, Joe has done it. She's a journalist, podcaster, author of fiction and nonfiction books, and writer of personal essays. Her latest book, her eighth, is a novel called Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, and it's a fascinating look at what it takes for a woman to run for national office. For seven years, Joe worked for the New York Daily News, she's been on staff at In Touch and Life and Style and Yahoo Travel, and now writes books and hosts the very popular podcast, Committed, which is all about relationships. I am thrilled to talk with her today here on the podcast. Welcome, Joe.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. You're such a good introducer. I want you to introduce me for all things.
0: That's so nice of you to say. Thank you. Well I'm working at it. This is I think our twenty fourth podcast. So, you know, with reps you get better a little better each time. At least that's the that's the hope, right?
1: It is. I mean and it's true. Practice does make perfect.
0: It does. So I want to start with your great book, your novel, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win Could Not Be More Timely. Was there a particular incident or moment or story that motivated you to create this sharply drawn, irresistible character?
1: There really wasn't. And a lot of people are very surprised when I tell them that I started writing this book before the last election. Um, I was watching how the media was covering not just the woman candidate, but all women candidates, and also looking back at how I've covered women candidates over my past 20-year career, and just thought, wow, we need to write something from the candidate's actual perspective, because the way that we cover women is completely unfair. And I wanted that kind of insider's look at a campaign, and then all of a sudden the election happens, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so much more important now than ever, and it, cha- it completely changed the book and not because of what was happening in the world, which was insane and trying to keep up with the news cycle every single day, but because I think it made me work harder and smarter. You know, in the beginning, Charlotte Walsh could have been kind of a satire and I didn't think satire would do it justice after what happened in 2016.
0: Interesting. And, when, and during 2016, when you say it changed, how did it change? I mean, what was your initial impulse besides satire?
1: Well, my my initial impulse really was to skewer the media much more. And again, right. we're we're all part of the media. We're all yes. We've all we've all been a part of this. Um, and I think my initial impulse was I wanted to give a behind the scenes look of the camp look at the campaign. And after twenty sixteen, I wanted to make Charlotte a much more complicated character. I think it would have been very, very easy to write lady political candidate fan fiction. Oh my God, rah-rah, she's a woman. She should win because she's a woman. And especially with everything that we were we were going through with the women's march and me too and those things. And I didn't want that. I wanted people to have to think about Charlotte regardless of her gender, and to come away from the book thinking, do I want her to win? Should she have won? And also, what did what did her ambition cost her? So I was forced to make Charlotte flawed, a little bit more complicated, and more nuanced. And I think that really pushed me in my writing a lot more than if it had been this straight satire. Um, and she could have perhaps been a little bit more one dimensional.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. Now, I'm curious if Hillary Clinton had won, as we all expected she was going to win, how would the book have been different or would, or would it have been?
1: I think it would have been. It was really hard to keep up with the news cycle. And at the end of the day, I, I had to try not, I, I had to realize I couldn't do everything. I actually handed this book in before Me Too and then demanded it back. Because I was like, "Oh, oh my really? gosh, this is something. This is something that we have to have to add in there. We would you know, the book shouldn't come out without changing that." And my editor didn't want to give it back, and ultimately she did, and I, I got to add it. But then something else happened a few months later, and she was like, "You cannot. You can't have it back again. You have to just let it go." <laughs> I think that Charlotte would have been received a lot differently had Hillary Clinton won, because we would be living mm-hmm. in. world where there was a female president and we would, we would start to get used to that. I mean, one of the other reasons that I wanted to write Charlotte was I genuinely think that Hollywood and literature have failed women and they've failed women candidates. We haven't portrayed strong women leaders in pop culture, in high culture. And if you think about all of the women that Hollywood has had in leadership roles, I mean, especially in politics, One, they're few and far between. And two, they're cast in these very one-dimensional roles. I love Veep. Julia Louis-Dreyfus comes off as kind of an idiot in it. Um, Or the woman is kind of a shrew where she has no friends and she seems wildly unlikable. And because of that failure, I wanted to create a character that was a woman candidate, that was an ambitious leader, that people actually liked. And I think... I had to do that, I was forced to do, to do that because we don't have a woman president right now. We still don't, and people need to see that. And I, it was really important for me to make it fiction instead of nonfiction, because I think that fiction has the power to change people's hearts and minds uh, in a different way. It feels more subconscious. You feel more intimately attached to those characters. And that's what I wanted, as opposed to just hitting people over the head, being like, here's some ladies running for office.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. You mentioned Veep and, and, you know, you were trying to avoid the pitfall of this book, as you said, being only a satire and only a one dimensional character. And that's, I think, how you see the Julia Louis-Dreyfus character in Veep. So it's interesting that that was sort of a, a pitfall you successfully avoided, although of course Veep is great for what it is. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful show, um, but it's a one-dimensional character, as you say. Uh, you, fiction versus nonfiction—that you said—I really wanted to to play that out with you a little bit. I read that you interviewed nearly a hundred women who've run for office or worked on campaigns, and in reading your book, it is clear that it is a well-reported novel. So what are some of the trends you noticed and things in interviewing so many women who've run for office or worked on campaigns and tried to inject into your narrative?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just such a journalist, even when it comes to my fiction, that I felt like I didn't have a choice except to to interview these women. And it was women who had run for office, who were currently running for office, and women and some men who had been behind the scenes on campaigns. and the trends were, were shocking because I kept seeing them again and again. I mean, that's what makes it a trend, obviously. Um, women primarily being asked things like, well, who is taking care of your children while you're doing this? And you're a bad mother for taking on this kind of challenge right now. Shouldn't you be worried about childcare?" And in, in 2018 and 2017, these are things that women are still hearing. Women candidates constantly being asked what their husbands Think of their campaigns and their policy issues, which is something no one has ever asked a candidate's wife. Um, right. And then down yeah. into the the nitty gritty of how a campaign works, women just receive less fundraising. They just get less money. Um, it's much harder for them to fundraise than a man. And then the worst part, I think the most upsetting part, this is the hardest part of Charlotte for me, is the vitriol of the attacks on women candidates, Mm -hmm. particularly on social media. And I had talked to Christina Reynolds, who is now with Emily's List, and she worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. And she was saying they ran a very unscientific test where her and a male colleague on the campaign would tweet the same thing, and they would see who got what kinds of reactions. And his were very even keeled, like just a retweet or, yes, that is interesting. Whereas hers just inspired these intense, um, often negative, often very violent reactions from people. And the reactions that women candidates get on social media do tend to be very violent. They tend to be very personal. Um, And one of the things that I really wanted to show was how upsetting that is to an actual human being, who has to read those things, um, and also the people that love her, and they have to experience that with them. The other thing was just how difficult a campaign is on a family. Um, An entire family is the one that runs for office. And it was important to me to have Charlotte be a mother of three young kids and show what that balance looks like. Women candidates are often told that they shouldn't have very obvious childcare that they shouldn't have a nanny or be paying money for daycare because they should look like they're still the ones taking care of their children, even though running a campaign is often a full-time job and you have a full-time job on top of that. It's never an issue for a male candidate. No one ever asks a male candidate who's watching your kids right now.
0: It's remarkable that that question is still being asked in 2018. It really is. It's just...
1: Well, the the only and the only woman that I talked to who was not asked that was Lauren Baer, who's running for uh, Congress in the 18th down in Florida. And she wasn't asked that because she's gay and she has a wife.
0: Right. I was going to ask you about that. You know, Lauren Baer, who's, as you said, is running for Congress in Florida's 18th district, that, that stretches from Fort Pierce, Florida to Palm Beach. It's actually my mom's District. My mother lives in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, so she's in that district. And you did an event in New York where you were on a panel uh, with Lauren Baer. I wanted to ask you what was the genesis of that event?
1: I decided that. I'm sick of traditional book events. No one needs to see me get up at a podium <laughs> and read things at them. I'm also not that interesting. I wanted to use these events and use this book to start a conversation about women running for office in 2018. And that's really all that I cared about. So I've tried to make sure that all of my book book events, again, the focus isn't on me. And I've convened these panels of fascinating women, many of them running for office. Um, I've worked extensively with Emily's list on these to let these women tell the story, their stories. And then I can relate it back to Charlotte Walsh. But again, it has nothing to do with me. And the really, the amazing thing is walking out of these events, people come up to me all the time and they're like, Oh my gosh, who are all these, like, where are all the women running for office? I want to know more. And I kind of lower my voice to this conspiratorial whisper. And I'm like, they're everywhere. You just have to look for them (laughs) to pay Um, closer
0: attention. Right?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that's a lot of people, even through an, Gosh, I could go off all day long about how much I despise social media, but even through Instagram, I'm seeing people that are like, oh my gosh, Charlotte Walsh is a woman running for office. I'm going to look and see who's running for office in my district. And that means more to me than anything else than getting on a bunch of, you know, lists like best summer beach read.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's, you know, you're actually driving people to go find women candidates based on a novel that's a great accomplishment for sure
1: yeah and and the the some of the comments too are from women who say i'm not really into politics i'm not political but I love Charlotte Walsh and Charlotte Walsh is making me think about things in a different way. And that's, that's kind of the fiction, nonfiction divide. I feel like those women or, and men wouldn't pick up a nonfiction book about women running for office, but they will pick up a novel. And, and those are the people that we want to be talking to.
0: At the event with Lauren Bear, what did you guys talk about during the conversation?
1: We talked about the challenges... Of a woman running for office. Lauren is incredibly open and honest and very authentic in the way that she talks about her experiences in a way that I haven't experienced covering different campaigns over the past 15 years. She was telling us, Lauren has this great curly hair, right? I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. And she was telling us she's constantly approached on the campaign trail and she's told, or her wife is told, maybe Lauren's hair should be less severe. And you're like, by, by severe, do you mean curly? She's told to wear more. She's told to wear more dresses. And then in the same day, she's told to wear more suits because she doesn't look serious or smart enough. She's told to wear heels. And then in the same breath, well, maybe you should wear flats because heels might make you too tall. She was very honest and open about those things. And while we were talking about it, we were just watching the audience gasp and, I, I have this whole section in Charlotte Walsh where Charlotte chooses to wear flats instead of heels and she gets eviscerated for it, eviscerated and championed for it by two different sides of the media. And I remember my editor was like, is that too much? Do you think that feels true? And <laughs> yes, it's true. And, and that's, that's one of the things that, that Lauren and I talked about at, at that event, you know, that, and also just the strain Lauren and her wife were actually on the committed podcast. This, this coming week to talk about what a campaign can do to a marriage and the strain and the stress that it takes for an entire family to run for political office. It's just, it's incredible. It's so much more work than we see. And especially now when we've distilled a political campaign down to sound bites. sound bites that go viral, and that's it. And that's all that most people know about the candidates who are tasked with representing them.
0: I assume that you interviewed Lauren Baer while you were writing your novel, right?
1: Um, I'm actually not saying which women I interviewed while I was writing my novel. You're Um, keeping it
0: to yourself. Okay. I am
1: keeping it to myself. You know, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of Lauren's experiences that she talked about on the podcast and on the panel. But the second that I start talking about which women I interviewed as I was writing the novel, it starts because I know how the press works right now, it becomes this tabloidy game of who is who and who's when we have, we have some subplots in Charlotte that are kind of controversial and people pointing fingers and saying, is this, this person? And then it becomes about them and not the story.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. But at the risk of asking me a tabloidy question, I'm going to ask it anyway. Is Lauren Bear at all like Charlotte Walsh?
1: In that she's a woman, yes, um, in that she's an ambitious woman, but they're very different in so many ways. I mean, one, Lauren is married to a woman. Charlotte's married to a man. Charlotte is a tech executive who decides to move back to her hometown and try to fix a lot of the things that she's broken by being a tech executive who works for a company that has automated and industries and therefore eliminated a lot of jobs. Lauren has been in public service for most of her career, and she was working in the Obama administration. She worked for Samantha Power. So in the fact that they are both strong, ambitious, very, very smart female candidates, they're similar, but Charlotte is just this, she's fictional, but also this composite of so many different women and some men, some male candidates too, which was important to me to include because one of the things that I've learned in the recent spate of women running for office, women have been told for so long when they're running, you should run like a man. like you're you You shouldn't run like a woman because that's not attractive to voters. And I think women are finally starting to run a little bit more like women. They're focusing on things like listening and empathy. They show emotion. Some of the women that I had on my panel down in DC, they tell very, very honest stories about things like, their family's opioid addiction, or their fertility issues, or dealing with a sick child in ways that they were told for a long time to keep that buttoned up, pretend you're not a woman, pretend you don't have a family. And that's why I think it's incredibly exciting to watch women running during this election cycle. In the first draft of Charlotte Walsh, I had the idea to have have Charlotte, because she does have a child who's about two, maybe a little less than two. So I thought about her breastfeeding either in a campaign ad or at a campaign event. And everyone I talked to about it was like, that's crazy. No one would do that. And, and, then, and then we see it happen in the Wisconsin governor's race in, <laughs> in real life. So we're seeing incredibly exciting things happen. And I like that when women are running and some of the men running right now, they feel like real people for the first time instead of stock political character of this old white man with hair that doesn't move.
0: That must be so gratifying, Joe, to see things that were the product of your imagination and then even things that your editor said, you know, about the flats. Well, you know, is that the right choice would that really happen? And then, well, absolutely it is it, it is happening now. It's happening since your novels come out or even while you were still doing your novel. How is that how does that feel as a fiction writer to just your the product of your imagination and things that you were imagining could occur end up happening and in such a short timeframe.
1: Well, it just keeps happening to me, Don, in, in the sense that I, I think I might be psychic. <laughs> um, and I joke about that all the time. So I wrote, I wrote this novel, The Knockoff, which was about an old school magazine editor in her forties whose old intern becomes her boss and her magazine becomes an app. And it's about how technology is destroying the editorial process and how older editors are, are not valued as much in the industry. And that was published I think, three or four years ago. And ever, ever since it was published, all of a sudden it is all, like the world of magazines is just unfolding almost exactly the way we predicted in the book. So such that to the extent that my friends and my editor all the time are like, can you write in my happy ending where I fall madly in love with, you know, this handsome doctor and we move <laughs> to a beautiful deserted island. The same thing, I wrote a satire of the health and wellness industry called Fitness Junkie and just included some of the most like ridiculous fitness classes you could ever imagine. I had one that was run by like former terrorists. It was like former terrorist boot camp, which was oh, wow. vaguely offensive, but but then I like there was a real fitness class after the book came out that was run by former inmates in from like Rikers Island. So I'm like, you just I can't I can't I can't keep up anymore. Incredible. And clearly, clearly I should really just be renting out my services as a psychic because it would be more lucrative than being a journalist now.
0: Joe, you covered the last three presidential elections as a journalist. I'm curious if you were busily taking notes for a novel uh, during that work, or if it was really more organic as you were putting together the narrative of Charlotte Walsh likes to win.
1: I wasn't thinking about writing a novel at all during the last three presidentials, but I do keep really intense notebooks in journals uh, that I still have. Back dating back 15 years. So when I was writing this book, I went back through all of my notes from the past elections. And, you know, I like, I like to write down things that I hear people say. Um, I keep these little notebooks in my back pocket. And when I hear good dialogue, I, I think all writers are kind of thieves. So when I hear good dialogue, I, I write it down. And some of the things I did hold on to were just things I overheard from you know, Hillary running the first time And I remember being in the audience and hearing reporters from mainstream outlets and women reporters more than men say things like, why is she shouting at me? She's so shrill. And then thinking male candidates have made a career out of shouting at people. And I don't see anything wrong with her voice. And and when I I didn't think of that until I started writing Charlotte, and I reread my notes from so long ago. And then I tried to put that back in. And I remember I was interviewing another woman, God, like 10 years ago, and she told me about the thing about smiling, that... As a woman candidate, you have to smile more than a man because people are so quick to think that you're angry. And she just told me that she developed TMJ, like this jaw condition from trying to smile all of the time. And I worked that into into Charlotte, too.
0: And did you work actually snippets of dialogue that you had in your notebooks from three presidentials ago as well? Into Because there's so much dialogue in your novels. So were you actually using real... Things you were overhearing at campaign rallies and put them into the novel too. Yeah,
1: yeah, some of it. Um, I mean, not verbatim, but this, pretty much a lot of the dialogue was t- definitely inspired from things that I heard ten years ago. And I, I'm—I always say this—I'm very good at plot. I can write plot all day long. I can write plot and dialogue all day long. You know, I don't have the greatest literary chops, but I—I I think that I have this ear for picking up on things. That people say that are interesting, and so I've just been collecting those. And little did I know that I would write a political novel, but it it's coming it's coming very handy for this book.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, you've done so much. Uh, celebrity coverage in your career. And so I was just curious to ask you what the similarities are between sort of celebrity journalism and political journalism.
1: It's the exact same game. It's the exact same That's thing. Right.
0: <laughs> Spe- That's what I thought you were
1: going to say. Especially now. Especially now. Yeah,
0: especially now. Yeah, even just in the last five years, right? Yeah. I, I left the New York Times in 2011 to join ESPN. And just in the seven years, I mean, the, 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 the sea change in journalism and the similarities between the two, um, are so striking just in those seven years. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's incredible. incredible.
1: And even in, in the, the past three years, um, one of my favorite anecdotes from the 2008 campaign is there was this very seasoned political reporter who I respected a lot, uh, on the John Edwards bus with me. And she looked at me and said, it's so, ad-. and at this point, I had been doing a lot of celebrity coverage for the New York Daily News. That was my first job. It was the only job I could get in journalism in New York after graduating from Columbia because newspaper jobs were sparse. I wanted to work in a newspaper and I wanted to be in New York and I knew nothing about celebrities, but it trained me to become a really good reporter. And so this, this journalist looks at me and goes, it's so adorable you're here maybe I'll go cover a movie premiere or go to bungalow eight one night and try that. And I, I was just, oh my I, well, gosh. I, so I was broken. I was like broken Ugh. inside, but it's the one time in my life that I had like a snappy comeback and I just looked at her and I was like, you wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't get in. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Good for you. Well,
1: and it's true. Look, covering, I've always said, it is really important, especially now for us to cover celebrities because they influence people probably more than most politicians these days, and they need to be kept in check, and people, like, the walls around them need to be torn down a little bit. I think that celebrity journalists are very important to do that. Um, I I think celebrity culture is also very dangerous in a lot of ways, and so I think celebrity journalism often gets a bad rap, and I learned how to be a really good reporter being a celebrity journalist.
0: Uh, I love that answer. Um, do you think reporters right now in 2018 treat women candidates fairly? Any, any reporters, I guess I should ask you.
1: I think there are some reporters who do treat women candidates fairly. I think by and large, women are not treated the same as men. They just aren't. Uh, I think there should be a test for... I think all journalists should ask themselves when they write a story about a woman candidate... Would I have written this? Could I insert a man's name in here? And would it make sense for me to write this? And I think the answer is typically overwhelmingly no. Mm -hmm. I think some of the worst coverage of female candidates often comes from female journalists. I, I remember back to this one story that I did for the New York Daily News, and I haven't been able to find it on the internet about Hillary Clinton wearing the scrunchie that one time. Oh
0: yeah, I remember that, yes.
1: And I remember feeling, well, one, getting so much pressure from my female editors to write those kinds of stories, because they're saying these are the narratives that the readers want to hear about a female candidate. And it becomes this chicken and and an egg thing. If this is what we're writing about a woman, then that's what a reader is consuming. Um, And so I just cringe looking back at it now, but I still see it absolutely every day in coverage of women candidates.
0: And you know, the way the media covers women, of course, politicians shape the narrative, they shape the way they portray themselves to the public based on those kinds of stories and those kinds of expectations that are built up in the public by those stories. I'll give you an example. So I did a book called Her Way, uh, with Jeff Gerth. It was a biography of Hillary Rodham Clinton that came out in 2007. And one of the big findings of our book is why Hillary Clinton decided to vote for the Iraq war. Uh, and, and a big reason why she did, and it, of course it was, a, it, it was a vote that you could argue you know, might have cost her the election, the primaries against uh, Barack Obama. But a big reason she did is because Bill Clinton had urged her to vote for it because she had to appear strong. And mm-hmm. you know, we found out actually that she didn't read the National Intelligence Estimate uh, that raised all sorts of questions about whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and all sorts of other things. Which, by the way, uh, Barack Obama, as a candidate, used in a debate against Hillary Clinton. But but my larger point is is you know Hillary was reacting again, and Bill Clinton was reacting in that piece of advice to what the expectations were. A woman candidate is not seen naturally as strong. Obviously, yep. Hillary Clinton is an extremely strong candidate and, and 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 strong public person and has proven to be, and also in her private life with everything she's had to endure, but still she felt she had to vote for a war that maybe, you know, she wouldn't necessarily have voted for. And, of course, Obama voted against it, and it was a... And it was a big uh, turning point, actually, in the primaries. That particular issue. So it shows again, to your point, Joe, that you know the expectations that are built up by these stories—a story about a scrunchie, and you know all the stories about Hillary's wardrobe and her hairdos, and all the stuff that we were subjected to for years and years and years. You know, her her biggest political advisor was her husband, the former president, and he's reading all this stuff. And so he's he's reaching to find a way for her to look tough and look strong. And you could argue it, it, it actually helped cost her the primaries against Barack Obama.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, women. Women are judged. And the problem is it's this double-edged sword. And that's why it's so confusing to even talk about with with women journalists, with male journalists, with women candidates. Because we want women to tread this really fine line. We want them to be strong, but not too strong, because Mm -hmm. too strong is scary. We want them to be ambitious, but not too ambitious, because that might freak some people out, especially I mean other women. I'm not even talking about male voters. I think we saw this with Hillary Clinton that a lot of women voters were turned off by what they saw as her ambition. And does that have to do with jealousy? Does it have to do with their own insecurities? I mean, it's just... It's so complicated because we put, we, we give so much more baggage to women than we do to men. And I talked about this a lot. I was just on book tour with Glynis McNichol, who's also one of my good friends. And she's, you know, one of the smartest writers I know right now, writing about women And we've put all of these cultural expectations on women, that women should be a good wife and they should be a good mother and they shouldn't be bossy. And we're carrying those over into how we cover women who are running for office.
0: Great point, and and obviously Glennis is a friend of ours too. Uh, She was on the podcast a few weeks back, and she, like you, has uh, guest edited the Sunday Long Read newsletter. And you know we love Glennis. How was the book tour with with the two of you? Tell our listeners a little bit about that because it was a it was a different kind of book tour. So it's these two strong women. Two, you know, Glennis has a memoir. You have a novel, and you guys decided to hit the road together. Uh, Describe what that was like for our listeners.
1: We did. So Glennis has a memoir called No One Tells You This, and She partly conceived of the memoir, which is about turning 40 and being unmarried and not having kids and being really happy while we were taking a road trip across the country together uh, so that I could go move in with my fiance. Actually, we drove across the country in my little yellow Fiat with my giant hundred and five pound dog. And (laughs) we wanted we wanted to recreate that. For our book tour, because a lot of times authors just authors and journalists complain more than anyone that I know. And so they just complain about their book tours. And we wanted to have fun. And we also wanted to get the hell off the coasts and get into the middle of the country to talk about women writers who write about women. And we wanted to talk to women. And we had lines out the door for these events and women were just hungry to have these conversations. It was an and and a couple woke men and a couple not so woke men. <laughs> and, you know, we just we drove through the country having a blast of a time and we got to start a conversation in places that I think. People really needed to have that conversation.
0: Was this a tour that you guys put together yourselves out of your own pocket, or was it paid for by the publishers? I'm just curious about that.
1: So we we, we put it together and we proposed it mm-hmm. to the publisher. Publishers don't like to send authors on book tours. Book tours are very difficult. They're a lot of work. Getting bodies into a bookstore is so impossible. You usually rely on your own network. I've, been, I've done a book event where two people showed up and one of those people wasn't even my mom like my mom didn't even oh show gosh. up she was in my That's hometown so she was sad, like you know Joe. I'm busy oh my and gosh. I'm, I'm busy and I read your book and I'm like can you just can you come out there's wine there um so we actually we we had Simon and Schuster's support we we got a very modest amount of money from them and then I also worked with Airbnb to help us find places to stay. So we ended up having very affordable and sometimes free accommodations and we bootstrapped it.
0: Oh, you guys have to write you guys have to you guys have to co-write a story about this. Just I just love listening to this. This is this is a story.
1: Oh, I know. It was it was incredible. I mean, it was two women on the road driving on freeways through the middle of the country. Stopping and eating food in gas stations. I mean, it was like Thelma and Louise, except no one died at the end. At the end, Gladys and I are just both going to go to Hollywood and work on developing our books in a TV series.
0: Well, that, that actually tees up my next question. I was going to ask you, so what is the interest in Hollywood in your book uh, in turning it into a television show, a series, a film? Because I mean, it's very cinematic, the story.
1: Yeah, um, I actually got some ridiculously great news last night that I'm not allowed to talk about, oh, but okay. it involves an actress that I love very, very much and who I have just envisioned being Charlotte, loving the book and wanting to be Charlotte. And so we're working on that right now and developing it into a television series. I We're picturing it as one of the kind of limited TV series on a streaming network, but we're open to a lot of different things. and pretty much I'm on the phone every day. We've had a bunch of offers from different studios, but my my goal with this is one there are some there's roles in this book for women of a bunch of different ages. And it was very important to me that the woman who plays Charlotte be a woman in her late 40s early 50s because that's how old Charlotte is. And there's not enough roles for women right, in that course. age range. Yes. And it's also important to me to have Women producers, women directors, and women writers on this show. And I know that's, (laughs) I can't believe it still sounds revolutionary, but it's a little revolutionary. So it looks like we might actually make that happen. And I'm, so incredibly excited about it right now.
0: That's fantastic. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that, that it comes through and happens. That's really great.
1: Yeah, we we all have to keep our fingers crossed because it's Hollywood. And every, every writer I know has gone through this where they're like, oh, my God, something's going to happen. And then you get ghosted. For like years. You're like, but they yes. liked me so much. Yes, and I never had, hear I, from, You never hear from them again. I had
0: a story of mine optioned, uh, an ESPN story. I was so thrilled, it looked like it was gonna get made, and then it didn't. Nope. So I uh, every every writer has at oh, least yeah. one of those. Yeah. yeah. So you gotta keep you gotta definitely keep your expectations in check for oh, sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean I just at this point I keep my expectations low for everything so that I'm happily surprised when something good happens. Is that <laughs> is that the worst? Right. Is it right. like
0: no, I do the same thing. You just have to sort of expect, uh, have very low expectations for everything or no expectations sometimes.
1: Or no expectations. Or, yeah. yeah, or, exactly. or you know,
0: less, Or expectations that are less than zero even. And then, you know, if you hit the zero mark, it's okay, that's better than what I was expecting. Better than um, nothing yeah yeah less than zero um Joe you're such a prolific writer uh you know, I was amazed looking at your backstory publishing you know you've published journalism as we've discussed books and also personal essays. If you had to pick one form as your favorite, what would it be and why
1: I like novels I'm, i and I can finally say that I wasn't sure for a long time and i I've written nonfiction books and fiction, and I just love a good novel. I love sitting down at the computer and creating a story that didn't exist before. I I tell people all people ask all the time. They're like, how do you write so much? And It's really just a case of having been a newspaper reporter in the days right before the internet too where you have no choice and and then in the early days of the internet but where you have no choice but to just sit down and write and you have no choice on what topic you're going to write on and you just have to get it done and procrastination can't exist or you won't have a job. And now I'm in a place where I just think fiction is great. Like I said, I think that fiction really can change people's hearts and minds in a way that nonfiction can, but it's more difficult to get it in people's hands. Sometimes I think people don't realize that they're going to be taught something when they read fiction and then it can be a pleasant surprise that they have been.
0: Well, I'm a writer of three nonfiction books and I can confirm for the listening audience that it is very hard to get nonfiction books in people's hands. Um, I'm lucky it's, really, that-
1: it's really hard. It's really, yeah. really hard. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm lucky My- enough to... That- Two of them were bestsellers, but but my most mm-hmm. recent book about a strong woman, by the way, Babe Didrikson Zaharias, the greatest woman athlete of the 20th century, a book called Wonder Girl that was published in 2011, you know, only sold modestly well. And if I had written it as a novel, I bet it probably had a better chance. Than, it would be a movie
1: right now. It yeah, would be yeah. yeah. That was the hope hope um, in doing the
0: bio. Yeah, It's
1: so true. One of my favorite things that I've ever written is this nonfiction book called If Nuns Ruled the World. And it's about 10 badass feminist (laughs) nuns. And these women were the first feminists in the country, really, except no one thought about them like that because they're like, oh, they're nuns. That's different from an actual woman. Um, And these women organized sit-ins for the Equal Rights Amendment. They broke into nuclear weapons facilities Uh, to launch protests like they are such incredible people. But getting that into people's hands has just been difficult because one, it's nonfiction. And two, it's about nuns. And people are like, oh, nuns, that's a weird thing to write about. Although I will say nuns love the book. So the book continues to sell really well um, to nuns.
0: Yeah, but how can people not want to read a book about badass feminist nuns? I, you know, you had me smiling ear to ear when I heard that phrase. That just well, sells itself, doesn't it?
1: I th- it should, it should. And we actually had this wonderful column in the Sunday Times about the book uh, by Nick Kristoff because he loves nuns as much as I do. We formed a bond over that. Cool. Uh, I think maybe we should have called the t- called the book. Badass Feminist Nuns. It was called If Nuns Ruled the World, which is also very good. But Badass Feminist Nuns, it's just got this ring to it.
0: It does. Yeah. Badass Feminist Nuns would have been a better title. I, I hate to tell you, but uh, yeah, that's that's the winner for sure.
1: But that's also one of my favorite stories about dealing with Hollywood, because that was about to be optioned sometimes. And every time I've had the call with producers about that book, they say they're like, well, are any of the nuns young and hot? And I'm like, Oh, they're gosh. all like, they're all like eighty four, so yeah, no, that's the deal killer. That's the deal right killer there. right there. Yeah. They're like, oh well, then we right. we can't do something with this project.
0: And you, even if you had said late forties, early fifties, like uh, Charlotte Walsh's age, it might have been a deal no. killer. Right? It would have
1: it would have yeah. it would have been a deal killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're like yeah. they're like, why aren't these nuns like twenty one and like yeah. partying at all inclusive resorts? That's the show we want to see. That's right. <laughs>
0: How are you like? How are you liking making your podcast committed?
1: I love it. Uh, making committed is the most fun that I've had in journalism in about five years. I think that podcasts give you so much space for genuine and interesting narrative storytelling. The stories that I'm getting to tell on committed, and it's if you haven't listened to it, it's a narrative storytelling podcast about marriage, but about interesting marriages. So we talked to an astronaut and his wife about what it's like to be married to an astronaut, a couple that was blown up together in the Boston Marathon bombing, a couple of porn stars who are monogamous in their marriage, but they're still having sex with other people on screen. And I feel like I'm getting to tell very genuine and authentic stories in the age of clickbait journalism. And that is so incredibly rewarding right now. I just, I hope that podcasts continue to grow and people can, continue to love them because it is the one space where I think we're, we're continuing to do awesome work.
0: Yeah, I, I've we've just been doing this since last fall, you know, just a couple dozen of these and I'm having a lot of fun with it too and, and looking to do um, more of this kind of work for ESPN, you know, my my employer, because it's just it's, it's just it's a blast. Um, I completely agree with you. Now you ghostwrite a real tie in novel to the television show Younger, correct?
1: I did. I did. I I wrote. <laughs> I wrote a novel in six weeks over Christmas vacation last year. Marriage vacation, and it's a. It's actually a fake book on the television show Younger, which is a hilarious <laughs> and wonderful TV show. Um, that which pe- sometimes people are like, oh gosh, really? And I'm like, no, really. Watch the show. It's so sharp and witty and funny. And. Yeah. And that book ended up being a summer bestseller. Uh, Younger fans are rabid and they will consume anything having to do with that TV show.
0: That's so cool. How did that project come about? How did you get that gig?
1: I had just finished up writing Charlotte Walsh with my editor, Christine Pride at Simon & Schuster. And Christine was one of the folks who had the idea to do a novel based on a novel in the show Younger. And so she called me up and she's like, you know, we're not working together every day. And that's sad because I love you. And I also don't know anyone else that might be able to write a novel in six weeks. How do you feel about writing a novel with me over Christmas vacation? And I was like, yeah, hundred percent. I want to do this. And, um, the thing is marriage vacation is a little bit sexy Uh, and a little bit trashy sometimes. So I was at Christmas dinner with my very conservative mother-in-law getting these texts from Christine about like making our sex scenes sexier, which was actually kind of delightful.
0: (laughs) I love it. All right, well, thanks so much, Joe, for making the time. It's been really fun chatting with you and I look forward to meeting you down the road sometime soon, I hope.
1: Thank Thank you for having me. And next time I'm in Florida, I'm just gonna come stay at your house.
0: Yes, you're absolutely welcome. We have a guest room now. My oldest daughter's going off to Boston University in a few weeks, so her room is our new guest room. It's all yours when you come.
1: Perfect, perfect, okay, I can't looking wait. Forward
0: to, looking thanks forward to it. Thanks Don. again, again Joe. You've been great, really appreciate Bye. it. It's been an honor and a pleasure. You guys have been listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a kind review on our podcast page at Apple iTunes. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter, which Joe, by the way, uh, edited wonderfully just a few weeks ago. Every Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, the best journalism of the previous week drops in your inbox. If you haven't yet subscribed, uh, I'm not pleased about that, so you need to rectify things immediately go to www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. The newsletter is free for now. I want to give a big thanks to the great Carrie Barber, our producer for today's episode. And we will be back very soon with another great guest here on the Sunday Long Read Podcast. See you soon.